Welcome into the Sun Devil Source Report podcast. I'm Ethan Ryder today. I'm joined by reporter Jacob Rudner. Jacob, how are you doing today? I'm good, Ethan. How are you? I am doing great. I'm also joined by reporter Carson Greber. Carson, how are you doing today? I'm excellent, Ethan. Thank you. As well as site publisher Chris Cartman. Chris, how are you doing today? You know, Ethan, I took a look at the forecast here in town and there's a lot of highs in the low 90s coming up. So I feel like the mornings are going to start to be a lot nicer. The evenings are going to start to be a lot nicer. And then eventually it's just going to be nice all the time. So I'm looking forward to that. Certainly looking forward to that myself as well. We're going to talk about in this game, ASU's loss 17 to 27 against BYU. Before we get into that, Jacob and Chris, you were at BYU talking about colder temperatures. How was it at the game at Lavelle Edwards Stadium and just being there in the whole environment? I mean, the, the environment I thought was spectacular. It's it's not necessarily the big stadium that college football can go to, but the fans are so into it. Uh, particularly BYU student section was really impressive. Uh, you know, I, I would go as far as to say that in terms of overall, uh, you know, rowdiness and just filling out the seats, the, the student section has to be up over to some of the better ones in the country. And then just, you know, the overall, the place was nice. I, I thought that the, the scene was nice with the mountains in the background, and it was just a good overall experience. Uh, you know, all things except for the actual football game considered. It was a, it's a pretty, pretty nice scene for sure. Yeah, very good setting. Um, yeah. it, our seats in the press box were right on the 50-yard line. In fact, I think the 50-yard line split. Jacob and I, um, as good as seats as probably anywhere in the house, you get Sunday stadium, you're up so high that when you get to some of these other stadiums, it, it's, um, a little bit of a better vantage, I would say, especially when you're really, uh, center field, but it's hard to tell. It's not an open air press box there. Uh, some press boxes are the, the, the windows are open and, and some they're not this, they're not. So it was kind of hard to tell exactly how loud that it was, but when you just saw this vast sea of white shirts in their whiteout, um, with the student section, uh, you knew it, it was a pretty loud uh, venue, especially on the south side, which is where ASU tended to have more problems. And we're going to get into that. But um, comparatively, I thought it was very similar to some other non-Pac-12 venues that I've been to as far as the students, like maybe in Wisconsin or something like that. Now, the rest of the stadium, not as many people, not as loud. The overall environment would be equivalent to some of the better Pac-12 environments, probably like Autzen Stadium or Rice Eccles in Salt Lake City when that's really uh, active uh, and loud, or maybe even like Husky Stadium in Washington, which tends to get extremely loud as well. Um, so their, their fans uh, did a really good job, and it really caused ASU quite a lot of problems. Yeah, and from where I was, I was one level above you guys. With It was, it was open – uh, and so I could hear everything and it was really loud, but also it felt really good. As you guys talked about, it was a little colder than here in Arizona. So I, I thoroughly enjoyed my time. Everyone was very nice there. So it was a lot of fun. The game itself, ASU were maybe not very good against that loud environment. They were, it was a very undisciplined game, not maybe the greatest from the team, 16 penalties for 121 yards, which is tied with two other games for the most penalties in this century. So Chris, talk a, bit, a little bit about what happened and why those penalties might've happened. Yeah, they really had uh, a horrible game operationally. Um, essentially what happened is 
Tyson McDaniel is a former graduate assistant at ASU who worked with the offensive line, who uh, took a job with BYU before this season. And the Sun Devil coaching staff was concerned about the possibility of Tyson McDaniel being able to know and steal their signs. And what they did was, instead of having a the normal protocol, which is Zach Hill has a uh, no huddle offense. All of the players on the field look to the sideline. They get the the signals that come in. So Zach Hill, he he makes the call into the headset. Then somebody else on the sideline, every, all the players are watching that person, and he signals in everything. And from that, all the ASU players know um, the formation and the play. Now the formation can be all in a playbook. The formation is is they're, it's, they're all drawn up on the left hash, okay? So if you want to run, so the personnel is all going to be to the left, based upon the left hash. If you want to flip that, let's say you're on the, the you're on the right hash mark, so you want to flip the personnel, meaning you want the receivers to be on the other side of the formation or the tight end or the running back. There's a a it's, which is basically inverting the formation. That's that requires a flip call. That is part of the signaling that goes in. Okay. But in this game, what they decided to do was they, Zach Hill said a number, basically the number was then conveyed to Jaden Daniels from the sideline uh, in a way that disguised it, that Jaden Daniels then had to look at his wristband uh, which he never normally wears. The wristband had a number on it, let's say 23 or something like that. And then he saw what the play is that corresponds with the number. And then ASU had a huddle, okay? And the huddle, Jane Daniels would articulate what the play was from the sideline, okay? And that means uh, the formation and the play. So people saw in this game that ASU had a huge number of penalties, false starts, guys leaving early, um, and other operational issues like Jaden Daniels turning the wrong way from the running back and trying to hand the football off, or maybe Rashad White moving in the wrong direction. That was all caused by one of two things, either this, which is this game of telephone from Zach Hill to the play caller to Jane Daniels to the guys in the huddle who didn't hear him or Jane Daniels not saying the entirety of the call, meaning he wasn't saying that the flip, meaning the receivers were supposed to be on the other side of the formation. Okay. Or it was related to the snapping uh, um, uh, issues, which were ASU uses a clapping snap. So uh, Jaden Daniels will tell the, the, the players um, in this game, okay, the, on the second snap that you that were snapping the ball, right? Second clap that were snapping the ball, pardon me. Um, or the first clap were snapping the ball. Normally that's also all part of what comes in from the sideline and all the players see it. But they had this, for the first time ever, this totally different way of doing things. And they just frankly, completely messed that up. Just horribly got that all wrong. And to the point where, so for example, the people remember the Curtis Hodges uh, uh, big play that was called back because they said he was downfield illegally. Well, he wasn't lined up improperly. And then Rod, Rod Gilmore, the tight end uh, next to him, um, who was like a wingback, he also wasn't lined up 
um, illegally. Uh, but even though Rod Gilmore on the ESPN broadcast said that he was, what happened is that there are two receivers, one on one side and one on the other side, they were flipped from where they should have been. It was Ricky Pearsall and I believe Andre Johnson. And if, <coughs> pardon me, if the, the receiver on that side should have been off the line of scrimmage, which would have then uh, made it so that Hodges wasn't covered up. So then he could go down the field. Okay. So that all that stuff got messed up on many plays. Jane Daniels, like ASU, normally you're going to run the counter play that they ran really successfully where they had two pulling players running from right to left throughout the game. Normally you're going to run that to the field side. The field side is the wider side of the field. Um, and so if you're, if you're on the right hash and that play is drawn from the left hash to go to the right, you have to flip the formation. Okay, but that wasn't getting done. So they were running some of these times. Jane Gans was turning the wrong direction. And if you rewatch the game, what you'll notice is the vast majority of the mistakes uh, of, the, of this kind happened on the right hash, not the left hash. Because on the left hash, you don't have to flip the formation usually for what you're trying to do. And um, and then this, the other issue that happened, as I mentioned, was the the, the clapping snap. Uh, Donovan West was snapping the ball sometimes when Jane Daniels had not clapped for it. And then it was hitting Daniels in the stomach. And then he's like running around because the play is broken or Daniels was clapping for the snap and the ball wasn't getting snapped. And then somebody else would, would fall start. Well, ASU didn't change its uh, snapping procedure until the fourth quarter. Uh, people will remember they had, they were pinned deep. The student section was really loud in the south end zone. ASU had two penalties in a row, a false start by Henry Havis, and then a false start by Andre Johnson. And then after that, they changed their snapping protocol to a silent, true silent snap, where Daniels would raise his leg. The left guard, the Darius Henderson, would turn and watch Daniels raise his leg, and then he would tap the center, and that's how you knew that it was time to snap the ball. Problem with the, the silent snapping is that your offensive tackles, they can't hear when the snap is supposed to happen. So they are reacting to defensive linemen who are actually seeing the ball snap more quickly. And so they have a, a disadvantage when you go to a silent. Um, ASU messed up in, in that they didn't practice the silent count well enough because even after they went to it on the very next drive, they had two more penalties and then they abandoned it. Uh, and so they didn't practice it well enough. They weren't ready for, for either one of their approaches, basically. And also they made a mistake, in my opinion, with the, the way that they were signaling calls in not changing that or scrapping that entirely uh, once it was very clear by the second quarter that they weren't not going to be able to execute effectively. And really far and away, quite easily, this was the biggest problems that they had on the night. This was what cost them the game. This is the responsibility ultimately of Zach Hill and Herb Edwards. They, they thought that by practicing in the Dickey Dome and having crowd noise, that they were preparing ASU for the same environment they would face in Provo at BYU. But it, it wasn't because they all of a sudden were not able to execute and the coaches were not prepared for that. And they did not have a sort of a fail-safe uh, redundancy, if you will, 
um, way of uh, something that was going to work in either respect. And, and when you talk about that, that's a lot of you talked about on the coaches. The first play of the game may be questioned in terms of players being ready to play, but also there's there was talks. DJ Taylor, of course, didn't play in the game. Jordan Porter took out the first kickoff and it was a fumble. So does that show anything about the players' preparedness for a game of this level? Carson? Well, I don't know necessarily about preparation, taking an individual play and extrapolating it like that. I will say that I think it's an interesting choice for who to have back there. Jordan Porter, who's had a little bit of experience returning, but hasn't traditionally been one of the two players ASU has had out there on kick returns when they do have another guy out there alongside DJ Taylor as an up man. And obviously the result ends up being very painful there, but I thought it was more just a reflection of really the endless instances in which they shot themselves in the foot in this game. And I think Chris did an excellent job of outlining all the mechanics and everything that went wrong in the process with ASU being so aggressively penalized really largely in pre-snap situations, which is the most self-inflicted kind of penalty you can have. But also just the result of that is you completely beat yourself when you have 16 penalties, which is the most they've had in a game in 15 years. And by the way, this is now twice over their first three games that they've had more than 13 penalties in a single game, which they did not do in a single game for an entire decade from 2011 through 2020. That is just the undoing of this team. So the fumble to open up the game to me, it's a tough break. And by the way, they almost had another special teams fumble when LV Bunkley Shelton caught that punt and seemed to be hearing footsteps and dropped the ball, but was able to fall on it. I don't know if you can say that that's directly attributable to a lack of preparation. You're missing one of your best players, but it was just a demonstration of how this day went over and over and over again for ASU and that they could just never get it right. And they hurt themselves repeatedly. My feeling on that really is Jordan Porter probably shouldn't have been the guy back there to begin with. Uh, he is one of ASU's fastest players and he has great long speed. Uh, the knock on him is he's had problems securing the football as a receiver. So if you have challenges with your hands securing the football, those things translate to being a return man and um, ball security is a part of that. And then furthermore, um, coaches have to tell him we want to be conservative with returning the football. So that means if you catch the ball three, four yards deep as he did, and it's the start of the game, we're not trying to risk something there. Like he, when he, where he fumbled was inside ASU's 15. It, all you have to do is take a knee and you end up with the ball at the 25 yard line, right? So it was multiple mistakes, not just the mistake of having bad ball security, which he did not holding the ball high and tight as you're taught, but it was, he probably shouldn't have been back there. ASU realized he probably shouldn't have been back there because they didn't put him back there again the rest of the night. And you're not going to see him the rest of the season back there. So that's an acknowledgement of the mistake. And then uh, he shouldn't have taken the ball out. And then um, his ball security was poor, which by the way, if coaches were watching his ball security every single day in practice and he had even one instance of bad ball security, he shouldn't be back there. So again, I look at that as your procedure 
of determining who deserves to be back there and what you're what is expected of them when they are back there. And that, that was returning game. Switch over to the offensive game. The offense was a little bit of a mixed bag in terms of how they played throughout the game. The first drive after they the fumble and then BRU went on to score that, there was a long pass from Jaden Daniels to Andre Johnson, which was one of the longer passes of the year. So what do we see from the offensive team and or the offense and how exactly they were able to play well and then why sometimes they didn't play as great in certain drives? Carson? Well, I think that what's interesting is ASU was able to move the ball in this game against a pretty good BYU defense. That was not their primary issue. It just goes back to the central theme in all of this. They totaled 426 yards on the day. That's on pace with what they did basically in their first couple games against much inferior competition. The problem is so much of that was undone by the penalties and then by their inability to finish drives. If you look at the turnovers they had on the day, Jaden Daniels, his first interception of the game comes when ASU is driving inside the BYU red zone. And then the subsequent interception, again, they were not as deep into BYU territory, but nonetheless approaching the BYU 40 and you have another painful turnover there. So I think that they were able to get the passing game going in stretches of this one, which was promising. They were able to run the ball pretty effectively. Obviously, they have tremendously high expectations for themselves in that respect, and they have been utterly dominant there time and again. But you're only up against a pretty darn good BYU run defense. And Daniel Nagata, I thought, was outstanding when he got touches, particularly on that one series in the third quarter, which was essential to kind of keeping ASU alive and getting them some sort of confidence and momentum in this game. So they were able to move the ball. They were able to do it both through the air and on the ground. We didn't see Jaden Daniels have a huge game with his feet, but I don't know that we necessarily expected that. And I don't think anybody's going to question what he can do there as that dynamic playmaker. It was more important that he was able to successfully throw the ball, which he was at times. But then in other instances, you have those painful turnovers. You have a Johnny Wilson bad drop. Just continually, the theme is, ASU, again, not being able to deliver in those big moments and not being able to keep from getting in their own way. And through three weeks, we actually saw that really bite them for the first time. And I think that that applies on offense as much as it does on special teams or anywhere else. And, and Carson, to your point, if I could just add, and, and to really you know illustrate what Carson just said about how ASU was productive offensively to some degree throughout the game, but penalties really killed that momentum from start to finish. And I think nothing demonstrates that better than ASU's output in the fourth quarter. Uh, They ran 11 plays from scrimmage in the fourth quarter, 83 yards of total offense. They averaged seven and a half yards per play. At the same time, they had 56 total yards and penalties, taking away the vast majority of the yards that they were able to accumulate in that quarter. And I would add that in a 10 point game, if you're able to drive down the field in the fourth quarter, which ASU was seemingly able to do throughout the entirety of the game, then a 10-point game is not exactly a massive deficit. ASU was able to close the gap from being down 21-7 at halftime to 21-17, and then they lose the game 27-17. So uh, penalties end up playing a huge factor, particularly late in the game when ASU had several opportunities to get down the field, potentially score, and and it did things to undo the progress it made against the BYU defense that did play very well. And it did shut down ASU's run in a way that I'm not sure we've really seen, you know, recently from other teams. And that's saying a lot because ASU's running backs were still fairly successful throughout the game. So, you know, the fourth quarter 
was good for ASU offensively, and it was really its own worst enemy with 56 yards of penalties. I don't think ASU's run game was really shut down at all, to be honest. Um, Daniel Ngata averaged 10.3 yards per carry. Rashad White averaged 4.7 yards per carry. I mean, you put it together, and ASU had 161 rushing yards, and that, you know, it's a little bit skewed to the negative in terms of the yards per play because Jaden Daniels had eight yards and 10 attempts. I mean, and they still had 4.9 yards per carry collectively um it's you you look at this game and you say if somebody told you asu had 426 yard uh, total yards and was seven of 13 on third downs okay and zero of zero on fourth downs and they were three of four in, in, in the red zone um you would be like uh well asu won that game right like asu scored more than 17 points in that game right well no and it's because of what Carson was saying, which is they had drives that were just completely ended where they were moving the ball pretty easily in the second quarter on two interceptions. Uh, and then the third quarter they had, they were killed by their penalties where they ended up in a third and 20 something situation after back-to-back penalties. This is a team that was, they converted all of their third uh, down third down attempts in the second half except for two and they ran the ball easily in the third quarter so they they just they squandered a massive opportunity um i i I just can't even stress enough that asu was the more talented team asu was the better team if you play this game uh in sun devil stadium asu scores 30 or more points probably most of the time and beats BYU by a couple touchdowns, probably on average. And that's why it's so, like, just remarkable that they actually killed themselves and their chances that severely on offense in this game by going backwards uh, with the penalty yards and the, the, you know, plays wiped away. It's not just penalty yards. It's like big plays that were wiped away. It's not just the, what you go backwards. It's what you missed that you would have had going forward, right? Like, like 30 something yard catch by um, Curtis Hodges and, and a bunch of other types of things. It was just an absolute catastrophe as I see it. And Jane Daniels, um, you know, he, the, the interception that Curtis Hodges were hit him in the hands. It was a bad decision throw. Hodges was basically getting tackled as the ball got there. And there was two other BYU defenders right there. But I also don't like the play call from Zach Hill because why do you need a screen, which is a high risk play in that situation when you're moving the ball as easily as you are and you're at that location in the field. The second interception uh, was a Daniels just airmailed his target quite, quite, quite poorly. Uh, And a lot of these other mistakes were on Daniels uh, related to the, the the play situation, not getting everybody on the same page with the play. That's what a quarterback has to do. Uh, he didn't do it well, but they were asking a lot of him in a difficult, hostile environment, something he had never done before. They thought that he was going to be able to handle this. He didn't handle it all that well. And that ultimately, even though is a reflection of his capability right now, is more an indictment of ASU's coaches, Zach Hill 
and uh, Herm Edwards. And you talk about Carson hinted on the Johnny Wilson drop. You talked about Curtis Hodges and just talking more specifically about the receiver core. No receiver had more. Once again, didn't have more than five receptions. This time there were no receiving touchdowns to be had by anyone. A lot of checkdowns to Rashad Whiteman. He had more receptions than any of the wide receivers with nine. What is the scene? Because we talked about in our last podcast previewing this game what is the wide receiver group going to do? Because there's been some doubts if they can actually be what some people expect them to be. So what did we see from the wide receiver group in this game, Carson? Well, I really think it was more of the same old story. Again, there were a couple of self-inflicted wounds there and the Johnny Wilson drop storyline continues to be somewhat concerning for somebody with the tremendous amount of physical gifts and raw talent that he has. But when Rashad White is your leading receiver again, as he was last year, that's not a great indication about what your receiving core is capable of doing. And Rashad White is a very gifted pass catcher out of the backfield. He was a receiver during high school. And so that's always been a dynamic part of his game, but you don't want a running back to lead you in receiving in consecutive seasons. And the depth is there within this group. That's never been a question, really. Andre Johnson had that one phenomenal 58-yard catch where he got behind the defense, and Jaden Daniels threw a beautiful ball, and he has that big playability. And as we've discussed before, there are guys who can fill parts of what would make for a really good all-around receiver. But they haven't been able to do so consistently enough and they don't have that one guy who set himself apart. And that just to me is not changing anytime soon based on what we've seen through three games. This is always going to be an offense that is predicated on that run. And just to give further context to what Chris was saying, AC's running backs actually averaged 6.7 yards a carry in this game. They really were bogged down as far as the overall average by Jaden Daniels struggles on the ground in this one. But I really just think this is more of the same from ASU's receivers. And at this point, it would be much more surprising if even though you have five four stars in this room, which is absurd more than any other unit on ASU's team, it would be much more surprising if this changed than if it remained the same to me. I, I would add to that that I think that we did see uh, flashes of progress throughout the BYU game in terms of ASU's passing. You mentioned the 58-yard reception to Andre Johnson. That's their longest pass play of the year. I would add that the, the pass completed to Curtis Hodges that remains on the score sheet was a 29-yard pass. Uh, that was, I think, a very good-looking play. Chris, I think you know you commented to me while we were in the press box that that was uh, really pretty offense and good play calling on the, on the catch that Curtis Hodges had. But to Carson's point, even Bobby Wade, ASU's interim wide receivers coach, said, you know, we're recording this on Tuesday, he said today that he doesn't see necessarily – he agrees with, with – Herm Edwards' comment that there isn't a clear leader in the wide receiver room, and they're still looking for that voice. And he was asked, are there guys that are in charge of the room off the field? And the answer to that was, in a way, no. But he did say that Andre Johnson is becoming a little bit more of a silent leader, but there's nobody that's been totally vocal yet to hold the rest of the room accountable. So when you have guys like Johnny Wilson, who is uber-talented but young and still makes mistakes on the field, ASU doesn't have that person who's older in the room to be able to look at Johnny Wilson and say, this is the better way to do this, or this is how you should be doing this, or these are the steps that you need to take to improve. And I think that that's going to become a real issue. If it, you know, it is already, but I think it will be continuing to be an issue throughout the rest of the year for ASU is that leadership piece that they seem to be missing in the wide receiver room. And that's a piece that its coaching staff has acknowledged now several times. 
I, I would just say that, at least in my estimation, it's pretty clear that Ricky Pearsall and LV Bunkley Shelton are their two best, most reliable receivers. From the outset of the season, we talked about who would be lead ASU in receptions and receiving yards. And I think all of us had Pearsall or Bunkley Shelton. Our instincts were screaming, these are your guys that you got to get the football to, right? And man, that was a phenomenal catch that Pearsall had on that third down that we had one foot in bounce uh, that extended that drive. Um, I just think you got to really give those guys as many opportunities as you possibly can. Johnny Wilson, he might get there, but right now the, the, the reliability is not there. And, and that, that, you know, he, he can beguile you because he's so tantalizing in his potential, but that doesn't mean that you're ready to go out there and do it without hurting the team by having drops when you need to catch a ball on third downs. Right. Um, the other guys, I just think that they're kind of specialists. Andre Johnson and Jordan Porter, their home run guys are not high volume types of targets. Brian Thompson, you know, he's been hurt, you know, hamstring against UNLV. He's not been out there um, you know, in this game. Elijah Badger, nothing really yet, even though he got his first snaps, nothing yet to really demonstrate that he's ready. Uh, so, you know, but I will just say, I don't, they didn't lose the game because of this. They, 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 like, if those guys did exactly what they did, and ASU's coaches did a much better job putting them in a position to not have the types of mistakes that they had, they would have won, and nobody would be, like, railing on their receivers really that much right now. And Jane Daniels, if he doesn't throw the two interceptions, that's also a big part of that. Nobody's really saying anything about the receivers right now. So, yeah, it is still one of their more questionable areas on their team. Um, but Rashad White hasn't really looked himself. He, he – you know, took some of the blame on Twitter after the game. Uh, I think he's been a little bit too hesitant this year, uh, trying to read and feel situations out rather than just hit the hole. He had a really great run in the second half where he just trusted the hole was going to be there, banged up in there, did a really good job. He Maybe he saw Daniel and Gata hitting the hole really quickly and, and getting some yards and, and having some success. And that run game, again, I, I think the counter runs worked really well. It's just that the penalties move them back and cause so many problems operationally. We, they're going to get rid of that stuff, I think, in Colorado and not have a lot of these problems. I, this is sort of you know foreshadowing the next podcast maybe, but I think that they could have a really big performance. And, and Ethan, before we move on to the next topic, I would just add to what Chris said that, Chris, you mentioned L.B. Bunkley Shelton and Ricky Pearsall as two guys who Jaden Daniels and ASU's coaches, particularly Zach Hill, should really be relying on. I would personally add Curtis Hodges to that list. I think we've seen a lot of improvement from him in his receiving game. Uh, you know, you mentioned the, the play where he was the illegal man downfield, and that wasn't really his fault. But he looks a lot better, at least in ASU's first three games, and I think he has in the past, in terms of just being a receiver down the field and getting open and being more aggressive when it comes to getting to the ball. He's not as timid when it comes to making his catches, and it's not leading to the drops that I think that we would have seen potentially in these situations last year. I think it bears mentioning because that's a third potentially important target for Daniels to look at in games in addition to Pearsall and LB Bunk and Shelby. I would also like to very quickly add that I was beguiled by Johnny Wilson. So I don't want to take unfair credit because you guys all picked LV or Ricky Pearsall to lead the team before the year and catches and receiving, but I didn't. I picked Johnny Wilson and probably going to be wrong about that. 
it was a little subliminal. Got you on a subliminal. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll move on to the defensive side of the game for ASU and talking about the other side of passing the passing defense for ASU gave up 217 passing yards. They gave up three passing touchdowns. And the biggest part, Chase Lucas at one point was out for an extended period of time. Uh, He got injured, so that might have affected it in some way. We'll see what you guys think. They struggled a lot in the second quarter as well with some mental lapses and breakdowns that caused some touchdowns. So, Carson, what did you see from the secondary, and what do you think, or how do you think they played in this game against BYU? Well, I don't think that they played up to expectations because – The expectation coming into the year for this unit was that they would be among the best and the most experienced, certainly in the country when you return four senior starters and they were supposed to be returning another relatively experienced guy into Marcus Davis in the slot who we have not seen in game up to this point. And I think that the absence of Tamarcus Davis was definitely a factor for them in this one and that you have a relatively inexperienced Jordan Clark on the field, although he's a guy who's played, but he's not your top option there. And he is a freshman nonetheless. And he made a couple of crucial mistakes in coverage in that second quarter that ended up being really brutal for ASU and BYU is not an offense that was effortlessly moving the ball through the air against anybody. And a lot of the success they did have there was sort of in the short and intermediate game with Jaron Hall rolling out and whatnot and quick hitting stuff. And in that second quarter, they were moving the ball downfield in big chunks. And I think the most glaring instance of that was the 34-yard flea flicker that was the touchdown to Gunnar Romney which Herm Edwards basically just said was inexcusable. And that I believe he described it as the ASU defensive backs basically deciding that they weren't going to cover the guy on a post. And he ended up just sitting there wide open with 10 yards of space between him and anybody else. So at this stage in the season, three games in, I just think that's a little bit disconcerting because we talked in the first couple games about how they had their momentary lapses, but overall against the kind of competition they were facing, they were going to, for the most part, dominate. But in this one, they weren't quite able to get away with that in the same way. And if Tamarcus Davis is able to come back, that may help out with that. But you mentioned the injury of Chase Lucas as well. That is obviously giving back even more than you're gaining there. So We'll see how this continues to develop, and we'll see if they can play up to their potential going forward. But in this game, I definitely do not think that they did that. I'll be brief here just because I think Carson did a great job of covering that. But I think that no drive perhaps demonstrated what he just said more than BYU's first offensive drive in the second quarter after Jaden Daniels was intercepted. Uh, Jaron Hall completed a nine-yard pass to start the drive. Uh, there was a rushing play after that for four yards. Then there was – that came back 15 yards due to a personal foul. Then the, the Cougars pick up 31 yards on a bubble screen, uh, incomplete pass, 20-yard reception, 34-yard flea flicker. ASU gave up 94 yards through the air on that drive alone. It was a six-play drive and with, that included an incomplete pass and one run play. So uh, ASU secondary was a little bit porous throughout this game, and especially in critical moments like that one. And it led to them – giving up a significant amount of points in the second quarter that they never quite recovered from. And there were missed opportunities later on in the game that, you know, allowed BYU to stay ahead. But I would say that uh, the big thing for me was, was really just in that second quarter and particularly on that drive 
uh, ASU secondary got a little bit soft and BYU was able to target the guys who were just either out of position or not ready to cover some of those receivers. Guys, uh, BYU had 165 passing yards in the second quarter and only 214 uh, or 217 uh, passing yards in the entire game, right? And if you want to then parse that down further, okay, it was like their flea flicker play and like three other plays that were to blame for the majority of, of those, of those yards. So ASU had, and this is how football can be deceiving. ASU had a very good passing defense for 80% of this game, but the other 20% can make it look average. Right. And the, the, Cougars did a very good job of making it obvious who was the weak link for an ASU secondary. And I hate to say that, uh, I hate to use that type of a term, but Jordan Clark, who didn't play a lot in ASU's first two games, right? Because Mason Williams was their nickel, uh, their fifth corner when they, when they, fifth DB, when they went to their nickel downs. Okay. He wasn't out there in this game for BY for against BYU in those situations. They went back to Jordan Clark, who was ASU's nickel starter, as you guys remember last year uh, in the first few games. And there was two of those explosive plays, the the, the flea flicker and then like a 20-yard gain that were both uh, primarily the faults of Jordan Clark. The flea flicker ASU was in Cover one, you know, man-free coverage. Basically, everyone's got man except for the deep safety over the top, who was DeAndre Pierce. Uh, it was the double handoff, window dressing stuff. Then, you know, toss back to the quarterback. Well, Jordan Clark and Chase Lucas uh, and, and Evan Fields also, they're all covering their men. And they're on their guys for like the vast majority of the route. And DeAndre Pierce is over the top. He was, his job is to, is to be able to get to the most vertical threat, which ended up being Gunnar Romney who caught the touchdown. But he was trying to hedge so that he could also get to the other vertical threat, which was, running along the boundary and Romney was running in an opposite direction. They were spaced far apart. DeAndre Pierce was over aggressive in coming a little bit away from Romney. And so that he could try to also get to that other route, which made it impossible for him to get back to Romney. Once Jordan Clark then inexplicably, and it really was inexplicable, uh, decided to just stop covering Romney, even after he had carried him all the way, stride for stride basically until around the the five or the 10 yard line. I think Jordan Clark just assumed that the play was going on for so long that maybe the ball had been completed or was going to be thrown or was being run somewhere behind him. And he sort of broke off and looked back for a little bit. And then he saw, oops, the ball's in the air. Oops. My man just caught a touchdown. And you see Jordan Clark put his hands on the head, like on his head, like, what did I do? What, what Antonio Pierce has talked about since the beginning of the season 
and Chris Claiborne and Robert Rodriguez and all, all these coaches is you just have to do your assignment. What happens so often is all these kids were their best players in high school and they were used to freelancing and doing whatever they wanted to do because they didn't need to be as assignments on. They weren't asked to be. It was see ball, get ball, or hey, if you see an opportunity to make a play, go make a play. That is gone. That will never, ever be the case for these guys ever again for the remainder of their football career. But the problem is, is it's very invasive and difficult to weed out in young players. And Jordan Clark showed up with a bunch of weeds on the field in this game. And it proved extremely costly. Now, um, elsewhere in the second quarter, you had Chase Lucas give up his first actual real uh, explosive completion of the season. It was on a post-corner route run by Gunnar Romney, where Chase had one step that was too aggressive. It was a big stride, overly aggressive. If he chopped it down, he still could have maybe, he almost got back in phase, not quite. Gunnar Romney's a good receiver, though, so that kind of thing might happen. Jack Jones gave up one uh, uh, big sort of breakdown to Puka Nukua, who uh, uh, let the ball go through his hands, hit him in the stomach, and he didn't come up with it in the front corner of the end zone by the pylon. That was a missed opportunity for BYU. Um, other than that, there were there was a uh, one of their longer completions BYU had was a simple pass in the on the boundary side into the flat. Uh, to the tight end and their offensive linemen were they're, they're Remember they're really close when you line the balls lined up on that boundary, they got out. One of them cracked Evan Fields. And what, what happened on that play was Jack Jones thought that the ball, that the pass, that the, that the play was going to be a running back screen to the other side where the running back was running out into the flat. And there was three receivers out in front to block. And he started to run a couple steps in the wrong direction. And that prevented him from what his real assignment was, was to be able to make sure that he could get to the boundary to make a play on that tight end. So uh, there were some veteran mistakes. As I just said, Jones had two, Lucas had one, but far and away, it was the Jordan Clark, two big breakdowns, Mason Williams, they targeted when he was out there a few times. I think there's a good chance that Tamarcus Davis might be able to come back. We've been seeing in practice for the last week um, or more. Uh, so maybe he's back this week, but now you have Chase Lucas who got knocked out of that game and we did not see him at practice today. Yeah. And, and when you talk about the passing defense, you talked about the mistakes and, and really the second quarter being a lot of those passing yards that were talked about for mental lapses. When you go to the rushing defense, they gave up 144 rushing yards. They gave up one rushing touchdown. That was, of course, they were backs against the wall at the beginning of the game after the Jordan Porter fumble. But also on the, the last drive of the game that BYU or the last BYU drive of the game where they scored the last touchdown, it was mostly rushing and that was a 77 yard drive. So a lot of those rushing yards came from that as well. So Carson, is there any sort of similarity between the rushing defense and the passing defense in terms of that last drive, maybe being a lot of the yards that they gave up and maybe they played a better game than the stat show? Well, I thought that they got off to an excellent start against the run. And this was the primary concern far and away with this BYU offense, because you have not only a dynamic running quarterback in Jaron Hall, but you have a really good running back in Tyler Algier, who had racked up a bunch of yards on the ground in their first couple of games, who averaged seven and a half yards of carry last season. 
and they contained basically that entire attack in the first half. ASU allowed 29 rushing yards on 17 attempts in the first half. And so if you're able to do that, you think you're putting yourself in good position to succeed, as we've said about so many different elements of this game for ASU. But there was some deterioration there, and they did end up, as you said, sort of getting bled out on that last drive. But for the most part, I think this is a positive game for ASU when you're looking at the run defense. And Michael Matu said today that he felt that had been the standout, most encouraging element of this ASU defense overall was their ability to stop the run, which was compared to the rest of this defense, a relatively big question coming into the year. And overall, they've been mostly sound there. And I thought that this was a good performance. So this is certainly not the major concern of this game. And as I said, I think it is for the most part a positive, but they definitely did let up at the little, a little bit at the end there. And and that was sort of a dagger in the heart for them. Yeah. I would, I would tend to agree. uh, You know, the, the, at the end of the game, there there was definitely a lapse in ASU badly, but throughout the game as a whole, ASU's rush defense looked good. Tyler Algier, didn't even reach 70 yards on 21 carries. He averaged 3.3 yards per attempt. Uh, Jaron Hall, BYU's quarterback, was in terms of yards per play or per attempt, uh, he was their most effective rusher. He rushed for 38 yards on seven attempts, 5.4 yards per carry. Uh, Lopini Katoa rushed 29 yards, eight carries, 3.6 yards per attempt. Uh, It wasn't a phenomenal game on the ground for BYU, and BYU had kind of come into this game with a pretty – uh, potent rushing attack, particularly with Jaron Hall. And ASU was able to contain that. And I think that that was important, uh, particularly in terms of ASU's pass defense. Chris, you mentioned about how ASU was largely effective outside of the second quarter. And we talked about in our, our pre-BYU game podcast how ASU's pass defense would depend largely on ASU's ability to contain Jaron Hall. And a part of that is as it relates to the rushing defense in terms of Jaron Hall's ability to scramble. So Overall, this was a good game against a good opponent. Uh, and, you know, to, to foreshadow slightly about what's going to happen against Colorado, that's going to be important again because that's Colorado's main way of moving the ball with a pretty weak passing game. Yeah, look at the, the stats in this game. Uh, Colorado, I mean, pardon me, I'm saying Colorado because of you. BYU had 81 rushing yards in the fourth quarter, which was more than half of its overall rushing production in the whole game, 144 yards. And we said on the, on the preview podcast that BYU runs that flat outside zone where they make defense linemen run a lot and linebackers run a lot. And then you're playing at altitude, right? It's like whatever it is, 4,500 foot elevation or something. And then you have uh, you're missing Jermaine Lole all year. So you, you're thin on knee tackles. And then Trevez Moore gets hurt with a season-ending knee injury, which is horrible for ASU. And now, all of a sudden, you're playing more guys, more reps, and you're getting tired. They were, they were, they were just gassed, I thought, in the fourth quarter. And, by the way, a big part of that is ASU's offense not being able to, uh, you know, uh, be on the field and complete as many drives as, as were needed and forcing BYU to not be able to run the ball as much with a two touchdown lead for long stretches of this game, all of that stuff contributed. So the, 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 the factors are many more than just, Oh, ASU got bullied in the fourth quarter by BYU. You have to look at all of the variables 
that contribute to them. And most of them, I don't really think are necessarily the fault of ASU's defensive front. Yeah, maybe they missed some opportunities, but the game in no way came down to them not getting stopped in the in the fourth quarter um, on the ground based upon all of the other problems that they really had. Yeah, so both ways there were were things that just kind of happened that that doubled the yards that BYU gained and as a defense as a whole, we talked about Zach Hill on the offensive side in terms of how his coaching maybe affected the offense in ways. Was there anything from Antonio Pierce or how did you feel that Antonio Pierce did this game coaching wise, Chris? I thought that this, the overall defensive approach and strategy was good. Um, they did let Jared Hall out of the pocket one time where Darian Butler uh, he started going in the wrong direction from what he was supposed to be doing. And that, that was a, a breakdown that allowed for Hall's longest game of the night, 28 yards. But other than that, he only had 38 yards in the whole game, right? So it was one play. They pretty much made him a pocket passer. Now I give credit to Hall because I think he did a little bit better job than I expected from the pocket hitting some throws, but overall he was 15 to 27 for 214 yards. As we said earlier, it was like, you know, a bunch of those yards were, were a few plays in the second quarter. So the game plan for ASU defensively, I thought was actually quite good. All things considered, they also did what I thought was smart, which they moved Evan Fields up a lot into assignments underneath. And they let DeAndre Pierce be the deep player um, because I think Fields had some struggles with that in the first couple games now Pierce didn't have the greatest rep on the flea flicker, but the play wasn't really his, his, his fault. Ultimately, uh, you know, they, you know, they had some, oh, they had some mistakes. Omar Norman lot two face mask penalties. Can't have that. That was also costly, you know, late in the game. Um, and, you know, they're relying on some, some younger players in that respect, but given what they've had as far as some of the challenges with, some of these players who have been hurt and out of action and um, the, the opponents that they're facing and some of the challenges that they present, I would say that Antonio Pierce has done a, a, a pretty fine job overall as a coordinator so far. And now shifting over towards the special teams, the big story uh, on, on that case was DJ Taylor didn't play. We talked about the Jordan Porter uh, fumble on the opening kickoff, but what was interesting to me was BYU wasn't kicking many touchbacks this game. There was five kickoffs. Only two of them were touchbacks. And maybe part of that was because Jake Oldroyd wasn't there and Justin Smith was taking his place. But you have to wonder if DJ Taylor was in the game if that would have been a bigger difference and a bigger impact to the game, if he was taking those back, Carson, what did you see from that? What do you think may have been a difference if DJ Taylor was in the game? I think it's a monumental difference. And I think that we touched on why over the few podcasts that we have done, it's because he's a guy who has the potential and almost has the expectation to make a dynamic play every single time he touches the ball. And when you lose that, you lose a major advantage. And this is a guy who was so impactful in week one that after, again, one week of the season, 
UNLV decided they didn't want to kick to him at all, and they would rather just squib it and allow ASU to get the ball on their own 30 to 35 and say, hey, that's above average field position, but we prefer that to the threat that is DJ Taylor. And again, there was no substitute for that. So I think absolutely that changed the dynamic of this game. And it's possible that if DJ Taylor did get his hands on one return, he could have had the kind of single big play that changes this game, that one monster return, because there were a couple spots in which you think if this goes right for ASU, this entire game goes differently. And he could have introduced another element to that. So I think that was clearly a painful loss. And again, the guys who they did have back there weren't sure-handed. They weren't dynamic. And it was definitely just all around suboptimal in the return game. Yeah, not not much to add to that. I mean, DJ Taylor is a potent returner, and ASU definitely needs him. We've I think we've covered that extensively, and uh, Carson covered it for this game for sure. Yeah, and we'll move to the other parts of the special teams where there's been some questions. Eddie Triplitsky was once again very good. He had four punts with an average of 48.5 yards. He had a long of 59. There's one pin that was on the BYU one-yard line, and then there was another one that was very close to being pinned down close to their their goal line as well, but it was called a touchback. And then Christian Zendayas, uh, he made both PATs that he had and made a 40-yard field goal, even made the 40-yard field goal look fairly easy. So is the special teams portion of ASU maybe answered more so than we would have expected it to be earlier on in this season, Carson? Well, I think the first few weeks have been encouraging and that Eddie Chaplitsky is very impressive for a freshman, probably ahead of schedule as far as what was the expectation just from an external perspective. Even though he was impressive in practice, I think that he is a very gifted punter as far as directionally controlling it pinning people as we've touched on. He's had a lot of punts inside the 20 and he does have certainly a good enough leg as well. So I don't think that there's all that much of a question about what ASU has there. And when you lose Michael Turk, who was probably one of the best players on this ASU team, that was initially a point of concern. I don't think it is whatsoever anymore. And then Zendejas, I think has shown himself to be an upgrade from Logan Tyler and that he is the accurate kicker inside of 40 or somewhere in the low 40s that he was expected to be. He missed one extra point against UNLV, but for the most part has been accurate and has delivered there and hasn't probably had the same kind of kick-to-kick stress that ASU's coaching staff was feeling with Logan Tyler, where he was consistently kicking low. He was having attempts blocked in practice, had an attempt blocked in that opening game. So I think that all around, they have definitely upgraded and are doing all right there. I'll be bold here and, and, you know, Chris, you can bring me back to earth if, if you disagree, but I would go as far as to say that there's a, a, a decent chance that ASU has upgraded at its punter position. Uh, it may have lost some unbelievable leg strength that Michael Turk possesses. And that's, there's no denying that, but Michael Turk did not have the precision punting skills that Eddie Chaplitsky has demonstrated already in three games. Uh, I think We've seen enough from Chaplitsky to know that it's really not a fluke at this point. Uh, his his punt placement is fantastic. Uh, his control of the ball is fantastic. So quite frankly, in the scheme of a game, to me, that's a more important quality to have in a punter than it is to have somebody who has a massive leg and is going to boot a ball in, in or out the back of the end zone. So I personally think ASU has upgraded that position. And then, you know, Christians and Dejas making a field goal from 40 yards is a positive. We've covered it on the site uh, numerous times in the last several weeks and even over the course of the last year that 
his leg strength was, was questionable. And so a 40 yard field goal, though it came in altitude is definitely a positive. We'll see how those special teams continue throughout, but most of what we've talked about today is ASU kind of beating themselves in this game against BYU. So Chris, are there any final thoughts that you have from this game? Yeah, really just two of three games where ASU's coaches have come away saying that it was an embarrassing performance. And they're now the most penalized team, tied for the most penalties in the country. And the opportunity that they have in front of them feels so ripe to me because you look at around the conference, USC loses its quarterback, uh, fires its coach, going through some challenges, lost its first game to Stanford. ASU doesn't play Oregon, which is clearly the best team in the Pac-12. Washington has a bunch of problems with its offense. Colorado has a bunch of problems with his offense. Utah's starting quarterback to begin the season through more completions to the opposing team. Then he got replaced, and then he transferred, right? UCLA gets off to a great start and then loses – to San Diego State in 17 overtimes or, or however many that it actually was. Point being, what ASU fans feel right now, I know, it, in the expressed it on, in the Devil's Sanctuary is this is the opportunity for ASU. They have one of the most experienced veteran teams in the country. The defense should be good. The, you got Jaden Daniels in his third year. Uh, you can't squander this sort of an opportunity. And I still think ASU is a top two or three team probably in the Pac-12, but they have to get it in gear in a hurry and they have to absolutely come out and crush a Colorado team that has a very bad offense on Saturday at Central Stadium. And that will be it for the review of ASU's 27 to 17 loss to BYU. If you do want more about this game, there's a series by series Player play analysis of the game from Chris. Uh, it's up on the bowl, uh, up on the board, I should say, upon further review. Their next game is against Colorado, as Chris just alluded to. First game in the Pac-12. Wait, hold on. What, I, I made one mistake, Ethan. Sorry. I said, I said UCLA lost to San Diego State. It was Utah that lost to San Diego State, and it was uh, UCLA lost to Fresno State, so which is a much better team than San Diego State. So I just want to correct that. Sorry to jump all over your outro. No, all good. No worries. So make sure that Chris got that right. Like I said, there is a pond for the review that Chris wrote that is up on the Devil Sanctuary, up on the board. Uh, the next game for ASU is against Colorado, their first Pac-12 play at Sun Devil Stadium, as Chris just alluded to. Make sure to stay tuned to all of our content leading up to that game. But for now, for Jacob Rudner, Chris Cartman, and Carson Reber, we'll see you guys next time.